Amen. Thank you, Bill. Um, if you have not already uh, said this to your mom who's here, this is your last opportunity before I say it, so you might want to get that in quickly if you forgot about it today, but happy Mother's Day to all the moms that we have here. Uh, as Bill already prayed, we, we are so fortunate that God ordained the family and that he gave us mothers. Um, I'm Happy to be back. We've, I've been out for a few weeks, haven't been preaching for the last few weeks. I'm very grateful to both Ted for preaching as well as Pastor Billy. But we're going to be in our passage today, and, and there's already, just to let you know, there is a typo in your handout. We are not going back to Colossians 2. We are in Colossians 3. The verses are right, it's, but it's Colossians 3, 12 through 17, not Colossians 2. But as we start this morning, I, I want to make a controversial statement. Here's the statement that I want to make for us. As we're reading through this passage, I don't think our church has as hard a time with our passage of Scripture today as we should. I don't think our church has as hard a time with our passage of Scripture today as we should. I believe that if the church had been living according to its calling, applying our passage should be harder than what it currently is. If the church was doing its job, the need for this passage would be more apparent and therefore harder to apply. Now some of you might be thinking right now, listen Stephen, following the Bible is hard enough as it is. I don't need anything to make this harder. And you might be comforted to know that I agree with that sentiment. I struggle just doing the basics of Christianity. I don't want it to get harder, but in this case, the harder it gets to apply this passage, the greater the need for this passage, the more abundant the evidence that we are living this passage. When it becomes harder, there's a good chance it's because we are finally applying it as God intended. Our passage this morning deals with Christian unity. Paul will give instructions for how the church is meant to act corporately. In this passage, Paul is calling the Colossians to live like Christ towards one another. He exhorts them to teach and admonish another with the word of Christ. He commands them to center their lives on Christ so that in everything it is done in the name of Christ. So why would I think that communal living within the body of Christ should be harder than it is? Why should it be harder than, than, as we've already heard Andrea read the passage earlier, it's a big list. Why should that be harder? And I want to give you two reasons. First, because we think we understand who we are meant to apply these verses to, but we don't, and therefore we assume it's an easier job than it really is. We think, no way, I've got this. I know exactly who this is required of me to demonstrate. I think I'm doing an okay job because I do show compassion to certain people. I am kind to certain individuals. But when we look at this passage and the context it's in, it's a harder job than we might assume. The second reason why this might be harder or should be harder is because of continued disobedience to these verses, the opportunity to apply them has diminished and therefore so has our ability to reveal a compelling gospel. That after generations and generations of ignoring who these verses are supposed to be lived out towards because we have ignored them, that now the opportunity to apply them isn't as apparent and readily available as it should be. And we're going to get more into that later. But right now, let's just read through our passage. Colossians 3, 12 through 17. Put on then, as God's chosen ones, holy and beloved, put on compassionate hearts, kindness, humility, meekness, and patience, 
bearing with one another, and if one has a complaint against another, forgiving each other. As the Lord has forgiven you, so you also must forgive. And above all these, put on love, which binds everything together in perfect harmony. And let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts, to which indeed you were called in one body, and be thankful. Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly, teaching and admonishing one another in all wisdom, singing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs with thankfulness in your hearts to God. And whatever you do, in word or deed, do everything in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through him. Again, after reading that passage, we, we probably are thinking, I, I think we can leave it as it is. Let's not make this harder than it has to be. That list is already beyond me. And if you're thinking that, you can be, be comforted that I'm feeling that. How often I read through that this week in preparation and think, I can't do that. I don't live that. But in order to be faithful to this text, it is still necessary to understand the scope of the mission Paul was calling his original readers to. Right now, I want to consider the first reason of why our passage should be harder to apply than we might initially assume. As I've already said, the first reason this should be harder is because of who we are supposed to apply our passage to. To do that, we need to consider the context. What came right before our passage that led Paul to give this paragraph describing the re- what relationships should look like within the body of Christ? If you have your Bible, go ahead and look at it at verse 11. What did Paul say right before this description of communal living within the body of Christ? He makes a statement, and actually it's, it's a radical statement. This is what he says. Here... There is not Greek and Jew, circumcised and uncircumcised, barbarian, Scythian, slave, free. But Christ is all and in all. Now, why would Paul make that statement? What would Paul cause Paul to, to, to bring this? Because he hasn't really been talking that much about these elements. He's talked about some Jewish elements, um, some of the Greek elements before in chapter 2. But what would cause him to now lean into this? Because it's the logical implication of the truth he has already stated. If you remember, within Colossians, we've kind of seen this in three sections. Section 1, chapter 1 going into chapter 2, was all about truth. That middle section then was a threat that would cause us to depart from Christ. Now we're in this third section, which is the transformation that should come out of the truth. So what truth has been revealed? We'll look back at verses 9 and 10. Do not lie to one another, seeing that you have put off the old self with its practices, and have put on the new self, which is being renewed in knowledge after the image of its creator. What truth is Paul revealing? We are not who we once were. Everything is different. We are being renewed into the image of Jesus. This is the marvelous truth of the gospel. In Christ, we are what? We are a new creation. When we placed our faith into Jesus, we became a new person. The old has passed away. The new has come. This is the good news, and it is foundational for all of the transformation that Paul is calling us to. If we have not become a new person in Christ, all of the transformation of chapter 3, of chapter 4, we can't do it. This is what Dr. Sayer reminded us that Pastor Billy talked about last week. Only disciples of Jesus can put sin to death. But thanks be to God that in Christ we are a new person. So how does that truth lead to Paul's radical statement? Because if each of us, upon placing our faith in Christ, became a new person, it means we also now are part of a new people. 
This is a truth we sometimes neglect to think about as we often focus mostly on the individual side of our new identity. We, we think of, of our identity as, as just us. And there is an element where it is good for us to consider the individual side. You do not come to Christ as a group. You do not get saved because you are just a member of a church, because your parents took you to a church. No, we come to Christ as individuals. We individually place our faith in Jesus and he makes us a new person. That's good that we focus on that. But sometimes in focusing on that, we neglect the other truth that when Christ did that, he made us part of a new people, a holy nation, a royal priesthood. So Paul is saying our new identity in Christ supersedes the earthly identity. Here there is not Greek and Jew, circumcised and uncircumcised, barbarian, Scythian, slave, free, but Christ is all and in all. The incredible truth Paul is revealing is that our new identity in Christ is greater than our earthly identity apart from Christ. Our new identity in Christ supersedes our racial backgrounds, our cultures, our social economic standing. Our identity in Christ is greater than all of that and should have no bearing within the body of Christ. The new identity in Christ, which unites us, is greater than any earthly identity that would divide us. Now that's a radical statement. Because all of those lists, those are who we are. You ask, if you went back to the time of the Colossians and said, hey, who are you? Well, I'm a Jew. I'm circumcised. I'm, I'm this, I follow the law. This is my identity. Well, who are you? Well, I'm a Greek. This is what I do. I'm, I'm free, I'm a slave. All of those things, Paul's saying, no, that's not your identity. Your identity is that Christ is all and in you. Here's the problem. Philosophically, I don't think any of us have a problem with that truth. I believe all of us would stand here and proclaim the tr that truth. Philo philosophically, we agree. How about practically? When the rubber hits the road of, of earthly identities that get in the way of us having this spiritual identity, practically, what does that look like? If Paul wrote verse 11 today, do you think he would use the same earthly identities or do you think it might look something like this? Here, there is not American or foreigner. Here, there is not Republican, Democrat, Socialist, or Libertarian. Here, there is not conservative or liberal. Here, there is not legalist nor liberalist. Here, there is not homeschooled, private schooled, or public schooled. Here, there is not black lives, white lives, or blue lives. Here, there is not educated or uneducated. Here, there is not white collar or blue collar. Here, there is not employee or employer. Here, there is not rich or poor. Here, there is the body of Christ. Here... There is the church where Christ, who is all, is in each believer present. See, if verse 11 said something like that, would it change how some of us read the next paragraph and the expectations? It's easy for me to think, oh yeah, well there's no Jew or, or Greek. I'm not either one of those. I don't care. But if the list hits a lot closer to home, the earthly identities that I have a hard time relating to, that's a lot harder. And yet that's the context of our passage. So the reason I start by saying, I think this is harder than we actually understand it to be is because we don't understand the context that this is written, that Paul is saying, all of these earthly identities that would divide you, they're no more. Your identity is Christ. You are a Christian, a Christ follower. First reason I think our passage is actually harder for us than we might have assumed is because we have lowered the standard. 
If our passage is only towards people like us, people who share earthly identities with us, it's still hard, but it doesn't feel impossible. But if our passage is meant to be applied to people who look nothing like us, except for the fact that Christ who is all also abides in them, it is a much harder task and one that only can be accomplished through him. Now that we have a slightly better idea of the scope of what Paul is calling us to, let's look at our passage and consider the call God has for our church. Our big idea this morning is this. A God-glorifying church must be others-focused, word-saturated, and Christ-centered. A God-glorifying church must be others-focused, word-saturated, and Christ-centered. Let's begin by looking at how our church is to be others-focused, looking at verses 12 through 13. In verses 12 and 13, Paul gives us a list. And some of you have been waiting for lists. You love lists. Well, good news. Here it is. So let's look at it. Put on then as God's chosen ones, holy and beloved, compassionate hearts. One, kindness, humility, meekness, patience, bearing with one another. And if one has a complaint against another, forgiving each other as the Lord has forgiven you, so you also must forgive. Seven different categories, seven different actions or attributes that we are meant to be clothed with. It starts out by saying, put on then. Some of your Bibles might say, so, or therefore. The reason we spent so much time developing the context is precisely because of that word. Paul is continuing his argument. Because in Christ we are a new person, because in Christ we are a new people, therefore we must put on these attributes. Notice, though, that before listing the attributes, Paul reaffirms the truth of our position. We clothe ourselves with these attributes as those who are chosen, those who are holy, those who are beloved. God chose us. As we saw in chapter 1, he transferred us out of the kingdom of darkness and into the kingdom of his beloved son. He chose us. He called us. God set us apart. That's what holy means. In chapter 2, we saw saw that he canceled the record of debt. He set it aside. He nailed it to the cross. We are a people who have been set apart. We are beloved. God loves us. This threefold reminder is important for two reasons. First of all, as an individual, the truth of our position in Christ should motivate us to transform our practice before Christ. Because these elements are true, because I am chosen, because I am holy, because I am beloved, therefore I should put these attributes on. It's a motivation. But the second reason this reminder is important is because we are not the only ones who are chosen, holy, and beloved. Every other believer, regardless of their former earthly identity, if they are in Christ, these three truths apply to them just as much as they do to us. So here's the question we need to consider. What do we communicate When we acknowledge that Christ has given someone a new identity, but we refuse to interact with them because of their earthly identity. What are we communicating? What identity are we saying is stronger? Yes, I recognize that you are in Christ, but I can't be with you because you believe this. Which one are we saying is more powerful? What are we revealing to the world is really a reason to divide. If they are in Christ, they are holy, they are chosen, they are beloved. Who are we to treat them otherwise? How how can it be right for us to state that their earthly identity is greater and more important than their new identity? How is that God glorifying? 
Paul then lists the attributes that we are supposed to clothe ourselves with. He starts by saying compassionate hearts. Compassion is not only seeing the condition of others. I can look at someone's condition, the, the, the state that they're in, and I can be joyous, joyful of like, yes, finally, they deserved that. But compassion sees it, and it sees it with pity and mercy. Compassion is not blind to the problems that surround you, nor does it condemn and convict. It has compassion. It has pity towards it. Kindness. Kindness is a goodness demonstrated towards others. You not only see their condition with compassion, you actively do good towards others. Humility. That's not, not just in this context. It's not just um, being humble of, of, of you know, putting yourself down. It's, it's putting others in before yourself. Of saying, no, I will place your needs before my needs. Meekness. Another way of saying that is a gentleness of spirit. Often in, in the, within the Bible, it's actually translated as gentleness. Patience, a willingness to wait. It's giving people time to grow. It's not lashing out. Bearing with one another. This might be bearing with their sins and burdens or it might be bearing with their differences and preferences. The idea is of continued effort and willingness to carry a weight for another. If one has a complaint against you, forgiving each other. Forgiveness is to show grace towards those who do not deserve it. The root of the word in Greek is grace. Demonstrating that grace they don't deserve. Then Paul says this in describing forgiveness. He says, as the Lord has forgiven you, so you also must forgive. Paul is giving us a clue with this further explanation because when we read through this list of compassion, of kindness, of humility, of meekness, of patience, of bearing with one another, of forgiveness, who is Paul pointing to? Whose example should be right in the front of our mind? Christ. As Christ demonstrated these, we are to demonstrate them. Look at Jesus. Was Jesus full of compassion? How did Jesus deal with the crowds when they were following him in the wilderness with no food? He had compassion on them. How did Jesus look on the sick that everyone else ignored? He had compassion. How did Jesus treat the least of these with compassion? How did Jesus treat you and me, sinners who were dead in our sins, with compassion? Christ is full of compassion, kindness. He didn't just look at our state with pity. He acted with goodness towards us. Consider that Christ's kindness towards others. He was consistently kind to the despised and forgotten. He not only felt compassion, he acted with kindness, humility. There is no greater example of one who put others first than Christ. His humility was on display as he washed the soles of his disciples' feet free of their muck. But it was on even greater display when he washed our souls from the filth of sin. Philippians 2.8 says, In being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Meekness or gentleness. Many of you have read the book, Gentle and Lowly. That word gentle is the same as our passage. This word meekness, it's that gentleness. Gentle in his power, gentle in his words. Now, some of you might be thinking of a few stories within the Gospels where it's like, I don't know if Jesus was that gentle. I remember this whole story with a temple. I remember his interaction with Pharisees. But, but I, want, I want to just 
phrase those, those circumstances a little, put those in a different context. What power was available to Christ when he interacted with those people? What level of power was at his disposal when he interacted with people who were literally calling him the prince of demons? What power was at his disposal? What knowledge and intellect could he have used when he went into his father's house and saw that they had made it a den of robbers? Was he not gentle in how he dealt with that? And gentleness does not mean that you do not often still have to do what is necessary. But there was a gentleness. Christ was always gentle. He was gentle and lowly. He gave to each what was required, not always what they deserved in that circumstance. Patience. What, What display of patience do we see of Christ towards Israel, towards his disciples? towards us. Patience. Bearing with one another. Think of Isaiah 53, 4 through 5. Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows. Yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God and afflicted. But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace and with his wounds we are healed he bore for us forgiveness as the lord has forgiven you that is an incredible statement that paul all can make that statement assuming it's true i would expect us to say well if the lord The Lord forgave you, maybe, no, but he says, no, he assumes it to be true. You are in Christ as the Lord has forgiven you. Mercy and grace. See, this whole list, what the call for this list is, be like Jesus. This is the example we are to follow. Are we following it? Do we live with the same compassion Christ demonstrated I'm going to be honest, I struggle with compassion. It is an attribute I regularly need to pray and ask God to give me. Too often I look at the condition that other people find them in, hard conditions, and I will say, yeah, uh, the Portuguese word that in my mind is being faithful. Well done. You deserve that. You got yourself there. It's about time. That's not compassion. It's not compassion to understand, even if it was their fault that they got there, to see them as slaves to their sin. What if Christ looked at us and said, well done, you got yourself in that mess, you get yourself out, I'm done with you. No, compassion. Do we show his kindness? His continued willingness to do good for others. This kindness isn't just a nice act here and there. We don't get to say, well, I did my good deed for the day. It is that we are to be clothed in kindness so that each person who brushes up against us comes in contact with a goodness that we want to demonstrate to them. Humility, are we humble like Jesus? Do we put uh, the needs of others before our own? How hard this is. How hard it is to say, not my will be done. Again, we might think they don't deserve this. It's not fair. Imagine if Christ said the same thing about us. Do we have, act with his meekness or gentleness? So often we utilize all the power at our disposal in order to crush those who disagree with us. We post online how ignorant those Christians are. We think we will win them to sound doctrine by hitting them over the head with the baseball bat of truth. It's not what we're called to. Galatians 6.1 says, Brothers, if anyone is caught in any transgression, you who are spiritual should restore him within a spirit of gentleness. Same word as our passage. 
1 Peter 3.15, in your hearts, honor Christ the Lord as holy, always being prepared to make a defense to anyone who asks you for a reason for the hope that is in you. Yet, do it with gentleness and respect. I'm not saying don't tell people truth, but be gentle. Is that not how Christ acted towards others? Yes, he, he did correct others. Sometimes it was even strongly worded, but it was always with gentleness because Christ is gentle and lowly. Am I patient and long-suffering like he was? Do I joyfully bear the wrongs of others? Do I show grace towards those who have wronged me like he demonstrated grace to me by forgiving me? Think of all three of those last categories. Patience, bearing with one another, forgiving each other. I'm lumping those three categories in our list together because I want us to recognize an inevitable truth. Why does Paul need to call us towards patience, to bear with one another, to forgive each other? What does that imply? That you are going to be wronged. That at some point, even within the body of Christ, members within this body, this church, me as your pastor, we are going to hurt you. It is often the case that our greatest calls and needs for forgiveness, the greatest burdens we will bear, the greatest need for patience, often those will happen within the body of Christ. I wish that wasn't the case. I wish I could say you will always be safe here from all evil, but that's not true. This is a community of sinners who though having received a new identity are still struggling to put off the old self. And so you're going to get hurt. And here's the other reality, and you are going to hurt others. That's the truth. We are going to be hurt and we are going to hurt others in this room. And yet what Paul has called us to is not to, to pretend like it will never happen, not to this idealistic view. He calls us to patience. It's a journey. You might be further along than someone else in an area, and they might be further along in a different area. Patience, a willingness to wait, to see God's plan fulfilled, to see that he who began the good work will bring it to fulfillment. Bearing with one another. Not just bearing their sins, but also bearing their preferences. Forgiving them. Are we living this list? Are we following the example of Christ? Are we living it not in just how we live it, but in who we act towards? Again, consider Christ. Consider that the ones he demonstrated these attributes to. The division between us and Christ, and he demonstrated all of these to us, that division is far greater than the division between us and another believer. But grace is a bridge that can span all chasms. Move on to verse 14, and we see the need for love. It says in 14, And above all these put on love, which binds everything together in perfect harmony. We cannot accomplish the list if we don't have love. If you don't love your brother, you will not live this list. When I lack compassion, when I don't demonstrate kindness, when I am not patient, when I don't forgive, when I do not put others need, the needs of others before my own, what I am demonstrating is that I don't have love. It is love that propels me to actually put on all the other attributes. It is love that will bind us together in perfect harmony. Again, we must look to Christ for our example. In 1 John 4, there is a long list of all of these love, what happened, that we have received love. In this is love, not that we have loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation for our, sons, our sins. Beloved, if God so loved us, we also ought to love one another. See, love is necessary. But you can't love if you have not first received Christ's love. 
Christ loved us by dying for us. He is the propitiation for our sins. But now that we have received that by faith, we are called to demonstrate that. Do we love our brothers and sisters the way Christ loves our brothers and sisters? See, this has been convicting for me all week. What I have realized is that I lack love of others. I'll, I'll, I'll be honest, being a pastor isn't always easy. Sometimes there's burdens I don't want to bear. But what I'm demonstrating when I go home and I am bitter about those things, I'm not demonstrating the joy of the opportunity to love like Christ. I'm, I'm allowing earthly identities, earthly divisions to come back in a place that they have no right to be. Understand this is hard, but it is not optional. If we are to be a God-glorifying church, we must be others-focused and we must love other members within the body. We move on to verse 15 where Paul gives us a law, a rule for us. This is what he says, and let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts to which indeed you were called in one body and be thankful. Paul uses an interesting verb in this verse. It's, it's one that is not used throughout the, the rest of the uh, New Testament. Um, but there is another time in which he uses a very similar, the same root within Colossians. That verb, let rule, is only used here and then with an additional compound word in chapter 2, verse 18. If you remember chapter 2, verse 18, this was a passage that Billy preached. What Paul said is, let no one disqualify you. That's the same root of the word that we have here. The word has the idea of an umpire who establishes and upholds the rules. If you break the rules, you're out. But the rules are there for you to follow to regulate your behavior. In 2.18, Paul is saying, don't let these false teachers, these faulty formulas, be the umpire of your life. Don't let these things umpire or disqualify or rule over you. Now we might be thinking, oh, wonderful. We can do whatever we want because no one should be able to disqualify me. That's not what Paul's saying. Because here he's saying, let this, this is what should rule over you. This is what should regulate, regulate you. This is what should disqualify or qualify your actions. And what is it? The peace of Christ. What does that mean? It means that our decisions should be regulated or according to whether or not it promotes the peace of Christ. Notice, peace is qualified. It's the peace of Christ. Paul is not saying just let peace rule. Never correct anyone. Never reprove them. Never rebuke them. Let's just all be friends. No, because that won't actually promote the peace of Christ. The peace of Christ sometimes means that you do have to divide. And yet it is there in order to promote peace. There are times in scripture where he says, after warning the one who stirs up division once or twice, have nothing to do with them. Because they are taking away from the peace of Christ. But I, I want to address the second reason here because we are called to in one body. You remember I said earlier that I think that this passage is harder. It probably should be harder than we expect it to be. And, and here's the second reason. Too often the church is divided for the wrong reasons. Don't misunderstand me. There are reasons to divide, but those reasons must be based on biblical principles and not earthly preferences going to say that again. The reasons to divide are based on biblical principles, not earthly preferences. Too often churches have become segregated and divided because of demographics and not theology. Too often people leave because not everything is according to their preferences and not every, and let me just newsflash, not everything should be according to your preferences. I'm the pastor here. We don't do everything the way I want to do it. That's good. It's good that it's not all according to our preferences. That's an opportunity to live out verses 12 through 15. The 
problem is over time, instead of living out Colossians 3.11, where all of these earthly identities are abolished, we've made verses 12 through 15 more convenient by planting and establishing segregated congregations. If Paul were, were to write Colossians again today, he'd have to write it 30 times. He'd have to write one to the Democrat congregation, one to the Republican congregation, one to the conservative congregation, one to the white congregation, one to the black congregation. He would have to write this 30 times. But he didn't with the Colossians. Why? One body. Understand, I'm not talking about this ecumenical where we are therefore now going to say, nope, let's get rid of, and we're all going to be one church. There are location elements in which he's talking to a local body of believers, the Colossians. There are theological reasons in which we say God cares about how he's worshiped and we will do it according to this. But there should not be sociological reasons. We should not have the white church right next to the black church. We should have Christ's church. It is an opportunity to demonstrate this passage. Will that make this harder to live? Yes. The songs you're going to sing are not always going to be ones that you enjoy. The way in which things happen will not be always according to your preference. But what is that revealing? That our new identity in Christ is far greater than any of those other identities. See, one of the tragedies is that we have lost this. The tragedy is that, that the world can look at many churches and say, oh, I understand why they're all friends. They all vote the same way. They go to the same church, the same schools. They have the same types of jobs. They live all, the, they, we can explain this. Christ's view of the church, there should be no explanation that fits other than they must be a new people. That's the goal. The problem is over generations where we have just said, well, let's just do things according to our preferences. Let's go to a church according to what I enjoy is that we have segregated and this opportunity to be a compelling community, a gospel revealing community has been lost. And it should not be. See, if we are welcoming people who are different from us and yet we know that they are in Christ, the world is gonna say, I'm sorry, how are you guys friends? How are you guys united? Oh, well, because Christ is all and in all. That's the only explanation. See, grace is the bridge that spans all earthly chasms, but when there's no earthly chasm to span, no one's seeing the beauty of grace. This is why we need to be willing to say, come into our church, be a part of us. We are not doing that in the same sense that we are going to bring down the standards of the Bible. I'm not saying that. I'm not saying, well, if Christ says it, but you know what, if we really want to have community with them, we're going to have to soften some of the things that God said. No. Our new identity in Christ is being transformed and made into the image of Christ. That's what we saw earlier in verse 10. But the willingness to interact with people who are different from us is something that we need to do in order to reveal the gospel. If you want to have a little bit more information about that, I found this book incredibly helpful talking about that. Okay, I put like 20 copies out there. Here's my only request. You can take it. It's free. You can have it. I don't need it back. If you want to talk about it sometime, we can do that. Here's the only thing. Please do not take it if this is going to make it onto that shelf, which is essentially the black hole of books to read next. If this is coming into next in line, and this is the next book you are going to read, take it. If this is going to be a book that sits on your shelf, please leave it because I'll give it to someone else who will read it. So, but this element, this, this challenge of what should a gospel revealing church look like is a church where people say, I have no idea how you make sense other than Christ. That happens when the peace of Christ is ruling over us. A God-glorifying church must be others-focused. Now we're going to move on to our second point. Our last two points are going to be faster. Let's look at verse 16, because a God-glorifying church must also be word-saturated. Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly, teaching and admonishing one another in all wisdom, singing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs with thankfulness in your hearts to God. There's a similarity in this verse 
to Colossians 1.28. In Colossians 1.28, Paul says very similar words. He says, Him we proclaim, warning everyone and teaching everyone with all wisdom that we may present everyone mature in Christ. He admonishes. He teaches. But in 128, that's the individual call. That is Paul's ministry. It's a ministry we're called to, but it's the individual ministry. Here, though, it's a corporate ministry. This idea of let the word of Christ dwell in you is plural. Teaching and admonishing one another. This is how we are to grow. It's interesting in Colossians 1.10, which we've talked about a lot when we've said, so as to walk in a manner worthy of the Lord, fully pleasing to him, the next two qualifiers are bearing good fruit and increasing in the knowledge of God. Well, those two elements are what we've seen in our passage. Bearing good fruit is the list. These are the fruit we are meant to demonstrate. Increasing is increasing in the knowledge of God as we are learning the word of Christ. As we discuss peace, unity, and love, understand this is on the basis of our identity in Christ, and we will need to grow in that. There will be times where we will need to admonish a brother. There will be times where we will need to teach a sister. There will be times where our earthly identities need to be transformed by our new identity in Christ. And that happens as we are saturated by the word of God. Our gathering here, we should have the word of God in every element. We should hear the word of God as Andrea read it. We should sing the word of God as Josiah led us in music. We should pray the word of God as Bill started us off praying scripture. We should preach the word of God as we are in our sermons. We should see the word of God as we celebrate the ordinances. Word saturated. What's incredible here for this passage, though, is that this is the communal aspect. And how do we do this in community? We sing. We teach and admonish one another, often in words, but that's often as an individual. The teaching and admonishing of me going to my wife, or my wife more often coming to me, is Colossians 1.28. But here the teaching and admonishing is that we are singing truths together. This is a wonderful thing. We teach and admonish with wisdom. We teach according to the word. We teach through singing. Again, unity. Someone walks in and says, wait a second. I'm hearing one voice of many people because we are one people. We're not just one person. So God-glorifying church must be others-focused and word-saturated, but a God-glorifying church must also be Christ-centered. Verse 17, And whatever you do, in word or deed, do everything in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through him. In chapter 2, we saw that the false teachers were offering faulty formulas full of regulations. Here Paul gives one overarching rule. Do everything. Word or deed, do everything in the name of the Lord Jesus. It's Christ-centered. Now, this, there is an individual aspect to that. There is an individual call for that, but there's a corporate. What is the basis for the decisions our church makes? Is this in the name of Jesus? Is this keeping Christ-centered in our midst? Are we departing from Christ in any way? If so, then in word or deed, we come back to Christ. A God-glorifying church must be others-focused, word-saturated, and Christ-centered. But we keep saying this idea of God-glorifying. Well, how is this God-glorifying? Well, I want you to look at your passage and notice that the end of each section, there's a pattern that each of our sections that we looked at today finish the same way. How does, how does verse 15 finish, 12 through 15? How, what is at the end of verse 16? What is at the end of 17? What's the common theme? You can look at it. End of 15, end of 16, end of 17. What is it? Thankfulness. 
And it feels like it doesn't fit, make sense. Like let the peace of Christ rule in you and be thankful. Just kind of like, ah, let me just fit this in there. No, this is all an act of worship. How we interact as brothers and sisters, the peace that we have is an action of gratitude. The fact that we sing, teaching and admonishing one each other in hymns, songs and spiritual psalms, all of those, that is an act of worship of gratitude. That we would do everything in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ is an act of gratitude, giving thanks to God the Father through him. A God-glorifying church must be others-focused, word-saturated, and Christ-centered. Can we just acknowledge that this is hard? And we cannot do this on our own. We need to do this only through Christ. But as we've already seen, we've been given that superpower. That's what we started our service with. We've been given the Holy Spirit. But we need to not lesser the standard of these verses by saying, well, let's just make this easier and just fill the church with only the people I like. I'll tell you right now, that even that's not going to be easy because you're not going to always like them. But if we actually understand that this is hard, we actually have to understand that it probably should be harder than we understand because this is an action. This verse, this paragraph, are towards all believers especially those in the local church. And the local church should be gospel revealing because no one can make sense of it without the gospel. Imagine if the world saw the beauty of the gospel because of the unity they saw in this church. Imagine if people who were nothing like us came here as ones who were chosen, holy, and beloved. Imagine that we receive them on the ba their basis of their new identity in Christ, not their past earthly identity. Imagine what that would communicate to the world if the only common category they could find for this community was the fact that all of us are Christians. How God-glorifying would that be? This is our mission. If we are to be a God-glorifying church, we must be others-focused. Not just focused on others like us, but also focus, others-focused on brothers and sisters who the only common bond between us is that we are both in Christ. If we are to be a God-glorifying church, we must be word-saturated. Our gathering must be saturated with word as we sing the word through music, as we hear the word in the reading of scripture, as we pray the word in our prayers, as we preach the word in our sermons, as we see the word in our ordinances. If we are to be a God-glorifying church, we must be Christ-centered. It all comes back to him that in everything that we are doing, in word or deed, it is all in the name of Jesus. Why must we do all this? Because we are so overwhelmed with gratitude of the new person and people God has made us. A God-glorifying church must be others-focused, word-saturated, and Christ-centered. This time, we're going to partake of the Lord's Supper together. And as we are thinking of what this looks like, this is a beautiful picture of what we've just been talking about. That we have many diverse people, and yet they are coming to the same table because they came to the same Savior. What a beautiful picture for all of us to come in all of our differences and yet demonstrate unity at this table. So right now, we're going to sing a song, and during the song, I'll invite you to stand, but during this song, I want you to come to this table demonstrating the unity you have with the body of Christ as we will then partake of the body of Christ. Let's stand and sing in gratitude to our Savior. <laughs>